We're inside Massacrack Rainy Hobson's high tunnel. Metal poles support a layer of greenhouse plastic that towers high above our heads. Rainy looks around with a smile. This is my favorite place in the world. <laughs> it's early in the morning, but the air inside is already stuffy, like a sauna. And this is like perfect timing before it gets really hot and gross. Most of our plants are loving the added warmth and protection that the high tunnel adds. Although, this summer's unusual heat has stressed some of them out. Her garden beds made of salvage siding, brim with vegetables. Rainy pulls back leaves to show off one of her more ambitious experiments, and her five-year-old daughter beams with excitement. Yeah, look at our pumpkin. Can you show you the pumpkin? Look, it's getting color. Oh, wow. It actually has a color to it. Yellow. It's turning orange. Oh, that is impressive. Sure, in a lot of places, an orange pumpkin is nothing special. But we're nowhere near most places. By the time most Americans are heading out to the pumpkin patch for Halloween hayrides, this place will have snow on the ground and seven hours of daylight. Rainy and her project Gardens in the Arctic live in Onyctubic Pass, about 100 miles north of the Arctic Circle. There isn't exactly a lot of farming going on here. But Rainy Hobson is not the kind of person who cares about what's normal. I grew up in an environment where weird wasn't weird. Why not grow things in the Arctic, she thought. There wasn't much out there about how to do it. So she decided to do it on her own. She scrounged together some dirt, threw some seeds in the ground, and... Of course, it failed miserably. And, I mean, they literally just sprouted and died. And then... My stubbornness kicked in, <laughs> and I was like, okay, now you just kind of made me mad, and I'm going to make things grow here. You're listening to Season 2 of Out Here, a podcast about life in rural Alaska. Onyktuvik is connected to the rest of Alaska by plane. The two-hour flight from Fairbanks follows rivers, mountains, and tundra, but not many markers of people. Gates of the Arctic National Park and the Brooks Range surround the Nunamiet village. It's out there. Anuktuvik Pass has about 300 or so people on a good day when everybody's here. And it's just a really tiny village that was established in the 60s pretty much by a few nomadic families. And they came together just to have a post office and school and to offer things to their kids that they didn't have. Onyktuvik Pass is mostly native. I think we're like 90% native here. But it's this tiny village just nestled in the mountains. Living off the land is not a strange thing in Onyktuvik Pass. The founding elders of the community chose the area because of caribou, a huge source of food to this day. Each year, the caribou leave the coast and head to the Brooks Range for the winter. Normally, they pass through the area in huge numbers. But the patterns of that migration are shifting, and climate change might have something to do with it. It probably hasn't been seen for four or five years, and it stresses people out because they, people who rely on the caribou for meat, you know, that means they're not going to have as much meat. Rainey's not trying to replace subsistence activities. She just thinks that hunting, gathering, and farming can all live in one basket. Together, they can secure nutritious, affordable food for her village in the face of a changing climate. On episode two, The Mixing Zone, 
We'll talk about climate change, food security, the Inupiaq connection to plants, and so much more. We'll hear all about Rainey's project and the agricultural revolution she's plotting up there in the Arctic. I want there to be like 30 of rainy, weird rainy agriculture people (laughs) all across the slope. So it's not just me. You know, I want it to be normal. First up, we'll hear how and why Rainey started an agricultural business in a pretty unlikely place. Rainey grew up in a tiny village on the coast of northwest Alaska. Most summers, she'd visit her grandmother in California. Her entire uh, lot where their house was covered in plants. Any space she could fill, she did. And so my summers were spent uh, hauling chicken poo and and uh, killing slugs and snails, which is incredibly violent <laughs> for a child, just smashing them. But, you know, that's how I grew up. And it was familiar to me, this process of growing things and eating things. But it wasn't until she moved to Anitubik Pass, where her husband's from, that she started thinking about growing things for herself. I actually, when I moved here... I quit smoking cigarettes, and all of a sudden I could taste things, and I could smell things, and food became three-dimensional, I guess. And then all of a sudden I started feeling more healthy, and I could climb upstairs without getting out of breath, and it felt amazing, and it felt like a superpower. And so I started thinking and started talking to healthcare workers about what's another way that I can become more healthier. And of course they're always like, well, you can eat better. So I went to the store, and... There's not a lot of, of variety that's available at the stores, especially in really rural villages like this. There's frozen veggies, canned veggies, and very, very little fresh vegetables or fruit. Usually it's like potatoes or onions or things that are have a really long shelf life. And so I started looking into, well, how can I eat healthy if I don't have healthy things available to me? Most of my life I've eaten, you know, heat and eat or, you know, put it in the microwave, put it in the oven kind of thing. So I actually had experience gardening growing up. And so that kind of clicked in my head. And I went, why can't I grow stuff here in the Arctic? There weren't many resources. She read old books and looked to other parts of the world like Norway and Siberia. After a lot of trial and error, she ended up with backyard kale and chard all summer long. And her neighbors started to notice. We were eating beautiful green salads all summer long. And of course, everybody kind of like, what are you doing back there? (laughs) You know, they would pass by and see it. And, you know, we would eventually start trading with our neighbors. They'd give us salmon, we give them lettuce. And so they got interested into it. And they're like, well, if you're doing that, can we do that? And I said, yeah, sure. Let me figure out something easy for everyone so they don't have to go through what I go through. And I found these boxes, these grow boxes, which you just plug everything in pretty much and pour water in a hole every three, four days, and things will grow. So Rainey called her native corporation for help with funding. It's called Arctic North Slope Regional Corporation, or ASRC. Many Alaska Natives are shareholders in corporations created under the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. They thought I was a little crazy, and they were just like, nobody grows vegetables in the Arctic. It's barely summer ever in the Arctic. 
and I didn't get the funding and you know, being super stubborn, I said, well, I told these people I'm going to help them. <laughs> and I think it's a really good thing to do. So I started GoFundMe page and I raised, I think at the time it was $4,000. And so I got, I think at the time it was like five families started and we, you know, all were learning together. Gardens in the Arctic was born. You know, some of them realized they didn't want to grow, but they still wanted to eat healthy. So I was trying to figure out how can I grow a larger amount of food for people and also be learning about what will grow here and what won't and what people eat because some things will grow here that nobody's going to touch. <laughs> so I researched about high tunnels and greenhouses and, you know, I obsessed about it for a while. And then ASRC, who was on board at this point, because <laughs> they stopped thinking I was crazy. And they're very good about funding projects like this and supporting their people. So they got on board, and that's how we got the high tunnel. Nowadays, there are three parts to Rainey's business. She sets up grow boxes for families in the community so they can grow their own food for free. She grows food and sells it, and she uses the high tunnel as an experiment. I'm trying to figure out what will grow and what tastes good, because the taste changes from growing here in this 24-hour light and uh, this environment. She's also using that information to create a new agricultural model. Back inside Rainy's High Tunnel, we don't just find plants like zucchini and kale. There are traditional ones, too. Rainy's daughter picks a plant I don't recognize and has long, pointed leaves, and it smells really good, despite its name. Stinkweeds keep the bugs have, like, away. Really? What else is stinkweed for? And it's fire. In the fire, we burn it to oh. kill mosquitoes. Can you eat it? Mm-mm. We can't eat it. No. It's all part of the unique version of agriculture that Rainy has created and that she's trying to spread across her region. Next up, we'll talk about that model and why reconnecting her community to plants is so important. Rainy eyes a raven as we head behind her house to meet her chickens. It's just one of many creatures she has to keep an eye on. Wilderness surrounds Anaktubik Pass, but within the village, things are pretty close together. It's one of the challenges of gardening and farming here, finding space to do it. Rainy had to put her high tunnel in a friend's yard on the other side of town. Her own backyard is just big enough for a small garden and chicken coop. They're like little dinosaurs. After we visit with the chickens, we head inside Rainy's house and with coffee in hand, sit down to chat. Rainy's house is right by the town's only airstrip and post office, so traffic's pretty frequent. Four-wheelers driving by, dogs barking, planes flying overhead. It's hard to find a controlled sound environment here. But that's part of the soundscape of life out here in rural Alaska. This place is a living, breathing community, and nobody operates in a vacuum. It's all part of Rainy's story. Thank you.
do you consider yourself a farmer? No. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what to call myself. And that's why I kind of fumble with like, what do you do? And I'm like, any back agriculture, something, (laughs) you know, I don't know what to, because it's not just agriculture. It's culture, culture. It's like a mesh between our culture and agriculture. So that's super interesting. It's like a new model. It doesn't necessarily fit the traditional vocabulary of, of farming. And yeah. Because when we think of farm, we always think of um, red barns and chickens and cows and straw hats and overalls. And that's not what it's going to look like up here <laughs> at all. And it's predominantly a male industry. And up here we're finding it's mostly women that get into it. Um, the men are the ones that usually go and go out and gone for days and doing whatever, <laughs> depending on the season, duck season, sheep season, fur season, caribou season. I mean, there's all kinds of seasons. They're running around, literally. And, you know, the women tend to stay closer to home and have more time and ability to care for baby plants. So. Um, what are some ways that you would say the model of agriculture that's going to work here differs from that more I guess western model or or whatever you want to call it I don't know I haven't actually sat down and thought of that yeah in our culture and communities we tend to take the value first and then build around that value so I'm not focusing on making a lot of money that's not my my goal is to make tons of money and become a millionaire from selling strawberries (laughs) you know that's not my goal my goal is to provide a service for my community and to make my people better health-wise mentally and just give them an option that they didn't have before and I guess I could just lean more toward towards making money and get super technical and plan everything out perfectly and only focus on like three crops you know there's ways to do it but I think with this model, it's more focused around realizing that 50% of my product is going to be given away to elders. And that's just part of our culture first. That's our values first. And then the model kind of builds itself around it, I think. I think that's the difference is our starting point. Yeah. yeah. What's been the response like in the community to your project? At first, it was a lot of confusion. It's not a nor- normal, and I do air quotes, you can't really see it, but I do air quotes because it's not a normal Inupak native thing to be gardening or to be involved in agriculture. We had thousands of years of, of relationships with plants and eating plants and caring for plants and feeding plants and walking to plants. <laughs> you know, we were very, we had this connection, then we lost it when we stopped being nomadic. And so I was trying to focus on that. And so that was the initial reaction was just, that's very weird. You're growing alien vegetables. You know, a lot of people here do not, are not familiar with zucchini and kale and stuff like that because it's, they don't ship them here. They don't have a really long shelf life. So they've never been exposed to those kind of vegetables before. And then I started cooking things and I give away a lot of free things all the time. And it's slowly catching on that it's not odd and it's becoming normal and not weird. And so I'm really happy about that. That's a goal of mine. Do you use food from the high tunnel in traditional dishes ever? 
Yes. Non-stop constantly. It's kind of puts a new spin on old stuff because people kind of have this vision of old, old-timey Inipal food as being not as tasty or survival food. I've heard people call it that all the time. That really irks me. And so it's like, well, this can be a modern thing too. And I think that's really important is to bring it forward into now and be like, you know, Eskimo potatoes or Ipik leaves can be chopped up and mixed with a vinaigrette, you know, instead of sea oil. So there's all kinds of things, and I love doing that. I really encourage people to be like, okay, what does it mean to be Inipak in this day and age? These are our values. These are the things we're trying to do, but what does that mean now? Was there knowledge that you had learned from Inupiaq culture and from like your relationship to plants there that you then kind of transferred to growing things in the high tunnel? I just realized that part of the beginning story of this whole thing was I actually was talking to somebody here, one of the original elders here. She used to bury potatoes along one of the creeks up north. And then she'd come back in the fall and, and dig them all up and get like hundreds of pounds of potatoes. And I thought that was fascinating because that was like a long time ago, <laughs> you know, and very traditional native woman. And she was growing potatoes. But that's where it like originated from. Like it was kind of just a mismatch of all this information. I heard a story from a woman, her mom, at her cabin. She would transplant stinkweed and medicinal plants to her cabin. And then she would feed these plants. And what she would feed them is the, they call it pudding, but it's, it's the partially digested contents of a caribou stomach. It's green, it's kind of smelly, vinegary, but it's all broken down and available with enzymes. And she said she just stuck that into the ground. And these plants who are normally two feet tall would grow six foot tall, seven foot tall. And I was like, oh, man, how can I use that <laughs> in agriculture? There's a perfect, you know, resource right there because we live off caribou. We don't eat the innards anymore. So how can I do that? So that's, you know, this stuff pops up all the time. You talked about your community's relationship to plants and sort of the history there and how it's evolved over time. And I just wondered if you wouldn't mind talking about that a little bit. You were, you had mentioned that, you know, nowadays people just, they don't yeah. think of the plant relationship, but that historically it was there. Yeah. I mean, if you want to go back in history, I think it started with the generation that was taken when they were very young and shipped to residential schools. And they have a memory of living off the land and the plants and vegetables, but they there's a huge gap in their knowledge. So when they came back, um, that knowledge pretty much was starting to fade away. So traditionally, way, way, way back in the day, right around the time of us meeting Western culture, we relied more heavily on plants from the land and roots and berries than we do now. And there's this perception of you know, in our culture that we're meat eaters, literally they call Eskimos, which I guess in the language means meat eaters. We kind of bought into it a little bit, I guess, and forgot that there was this part of our culture that's centered around plants. We had this relationship with them that I, was, I thought was pretty interesting because people didn't realize what it meant mostly is that we would pull the plants that we didn't want that were competing and we would leave behind fish skins and fish bones, or you would always make sure you left something behind. If you took a plant, you left something behind. 
to replace that food that you removed. And so it's like, in a way, you could think of it as an early type of agriculture. And so, you know, getting back to that being okay and something that we actually talk about, I think is really important. When you talk to the elders in the community, do they see what you're doing as carrying on a tradition? Are they kind of like, oh, but you're growing, you know, lettuce. You're not going and gathering traditional plants. I think like part of the boundaries that I'm trying to break through is this idea that we always have to be doing the same thing for thousands of years. And part of that is recognizing our own history. We used to be mammoth eaters, Kiligbuk. Our historians and our elders remember recipes, how to, how to cook a mammoth, how to cut a mammoth, how to divvy up a mammoth, how to kill a mammoth. And it's still passed down generation after generation, even though it's been something like 4,000 years since we actually hunted mammoth. And I, I look at it as like, well, the people that hunted mammoth were Inupiaq, but after the mammoth disappeared, they were still Inupiaq. I think part of it is realizing that we are very our our talent and our inibakness, our nativeness is tied to adaptability and being able to survive and even thrive in an environment because we are very adjustable and we are conquer whatever we're given. Okay, so I want to interrupt here for just a minute. Um, I was curious to know more about what people in the community think of Rainey's project. So I talked with Elder Louisa Kukienak-Riley. Louisa is an Inupiaq teacher at the local school. And here's some of what she had to say. What Rainey's doing is getting us reintroduce how important it is to have your own produce and how satisfying that is. It's just all around mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally great. It brings me hope because there's been so much pain because everybody's so lost. You know, I'm 68, okay. I was eight and a half gathering, doing everything from the land, from the air, the water, all that stuff. And all of a sudden, you were taken away nine months out of the year. So between that changing into the Western system, what the government, you know, I'll say was forced upon us, we lost a lot of things, the emotional, the mental, the spiritual, the physical well-being of our stuff was taken away. Very few of us held on to that because we felt that what was ours in the beginning from eons was really important. And to learn also from the Western belief system that was forced upon us to try to blend in the two worlds. It takes time. It's going to take time for us to get back to where we need to be to live in comfortably with the Inupiaq world and the Tunic world and to blend it together because a lot of them still struggling to be who they are. This is going to be one way to start the healing journey for people and I really believe in that and 
that our ancestors is uh, looking out after us, you know, and they're dancing in the skies and happy for you know, the prog- the progress we're we're doing. Okay, back to Rainy. Do you think that a warming or a changing climate has impacted your growing abilities at all? Or Yes, definitely, definitely yes. And I know I haven't been growing that long, but I've seen there was kind of like a stableness in the first few years, and then everything kind of just went haywire into the extremes, not only with plants and heat and heat stress and sunburn and all that kind of stuff, but also insects. We're getting fluctuations in insects population. You know, there was, when I first started this in my own backyard garden, I would go back there and it would literally, some, some evenings it would be humming with just thousands of insects and it was creepy to me. <laughs> so I kind of left them alone, but it, you know, that doesn't happen anymore. Even outside and in the high tunnel, we don't nearly get as much pollinators as we used to. We get slugs and invasive species of slugs. And yeah, there's animals are behaving differently too. And I kind of keep my eye on also plants coming from the south. We have cottonwood coming up. The trees are actually up here now. And a lot of them don't survive, but there's maybe like a four-year-old cottonwood out here. And which is weird, which indicates that the permafrost layer has receded enough where it can have a good root system. There's everything's kind of shifting, and we're kind of trying to shift along with it. You mentioned that you know access to healthy fruits and vegetables and things in your community is challenging. Why is that a challenge? So most of Alaskans' fruits and vegetables that are fresh like 90, 95% comes from outside of Alaska. But in the villages, everything comes in a plane. And sometimes your produce is going to be sitting at the airport for a very long time because they have to go on this monstrous journey (laughs) and pay per pound, you know, in an airplane. So I remember one winter I got really desperate and paid, I think it was $12 for like a one-pound cabbage. It was insane, but I really wanted a cabbage. I was like, I need something green. And I love cabbages. So I paid it, but it was very painful to pay it. And sometimes it's cheaper to buy a box of heat and eat chicken. Do you see a future for agriculture in the Arctic in some capacity? I do. I think it'll change. It might not look anything like I'm making it look right now. And I think that's great. I think it should change and grow and morph into whatever is needed at the time. I'm not really determined to make it exactly how I think it should look because that's, you know, that's not how our culture rolls. That's not our values. <laughs> it's more of just how is it serving the community? How is it serving our culture? By promoting um, greens and eating healthier, we are also promoting learning plants from the land at the same time and just making people get to know plants again. You know, who knows what my daughter's going to do with all this. I'm kind of excited to see. 
know, she might really be into hydroponics, which would be weird. But it might look completely different in 20 years. And, you know, that's fine with me. Yeah. Yeah. Does she enjoy working with oh, you? Yeah. yeah. She knows, not only does she know it's like more Western plants, but she does, knows traditional plants too, and she can identify them already. And she knows how to pick them and how to treat them and all the stuff that goes with traditional native plants. And she also knows how to treat and eat and prepare and wash carrots and kale and sugar snap peas. And how old is she? She's, she's five years old. <laughs> but she's grown up. You know, I'm dragging her with me everywhere I go. Whatever I'm doing, she's doing. So. Do you have plans for the future of the Gardens in the Arctic project? Dreams, goals, hopes, next steps? One of my goals is to have more of me. I want there to be like 30 of rainy, weird rainy agriculture people <laughs> all across the slope. So it's not just me. You know, I want it to be normal. I want people to have their favorite type of kale or even just with traditional foods, any kind of food and be more like self-aware of what we're putting in our bodies. I think I'm aiming for a healthier, healthier population. Definitely. Dreams. listening to this episode of Out Here, a podcast about life in rural Alaska. On the next episode, we'll switch gears completely and talk about big ag in the last frontier. Thanks to Blue Dot Sessions for the music, Ian Giori for the artwork, and the Rasmussen Foundation for the funding. A shorter version of this story appeared on Alaska Public Media. For more stories of life out here, head to www.outherepodcast.com. You can also find episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, all the places. Hang in there, everybody. I know stuff is weird right now. One more reason, growing local food is so important. Why not plant some seeds and learn what it's like to grow food for yourself, even if it's just a little bit. For Out Here, I'm Erin McKinstry. (laughs) ¶¶